and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today, Clandestine Clergy, Politics and Policies of Sexual Abuse in the Catholic Church. Our guest is Attorney Mitchell Garabedian. He's the attorney who litigated many of the first church-related child sexual abuse cases in Boston and the nation, representing survivors of sexual abuse by priests in the Catholic Church. His work with the help of survivors and investigative journalists uncovered institutional child abuse as portrayed in the award-winning movies, Spotlight and Our Fathers. Let's welcome attorney Mitchell Garabedian. Welcome attorney Garabedian. Thank you for having me, Mary Kay. Now tell us, uh, you have been representing victims of sexual abuse and one of the cases made famous was the uh, the Gagan case uh, took place here in Boston, Massachusetts, and the Archdiocese of Boston. Tell us a little bit about that case and and about the uh, the follow up the uh, the movie that was made. In 1994, a woman came to me who I've been representing for general matters. She's a very nice woman, and she had children ages approximately 12, 10, and eight years old. And she lived in a housing project outside of Boston. And she, she said, you know, you know my children for a few years, they're good kids, but all of a sudden they're changed. One was washing his hands every day till they bled. The older boy was beating up his younger brothers instead of just hossing around. And one was taking two hour showers. And she said, something's very, very strange. Can you just at least talk to them? And I spoke to them and we discovered that uh, it was a fatherless family. The father was not around, it was divorce. And she lived in the housing projects I mentioned before with other mothers who had children by fatherless families. And we discovered that Father Gagan, a priest by the name of Father Gagan was visiting her family and putting these children to sleep every night as he called it. But meanwhile, he was molesting them. And before I knew it, other mothers in the housing project and her relatives contacted me with the same sort of stories. So I started to file lawsuits and I started to notify the church and it grew from there. And before I knew it, I had 86 victims on my hand, the father, John J. Gagan, in a very short period. And we began litigation in the 90s and we fought for years to get what's known as the secret files. That's under canon law. They're called secret files or secret archives. That's where the worst information is kept about a pedophile. And we were able to obtain the secret files in Boston after three and a half years of litigation, which showed that Bernard Cardinal Law knew that Father Gagan was sexually abusing children and reassigning, he received, reassigned them to St. Julius Parish in Weston, but didn't want the parishioners where Father, where Father Gagan continued to molest. So that's how it started in Boston. I was standing on the shoulders of courageous victims and survivors, and that's what I do every day. But my practice in sexual abuse really began in about 1994. And the movie, there was a movie made uh, that went through this whole gig case and used your case files as the uh, as the evidence to uh, pursue this case. And yes, that movie, that movie was a labor of love by the actors. 
And originally the expectations were it was going to be a strong movie, but no one expected it, at least at the outset, although the potential is always there, to win Academy Award for Best Picture, which it did. A Pulitzer and, Prize, I believe. Uh, well, the Boston Globe won a Pulitzer Prize, the Spotlight team. And, and the movie has had a great effect on many victims. I constantly get calls from around the world, from victims or survivors saying, I watched the movie, can you represent me? I'm ready to now come forward. Because of the work of activists and lawyers in the media like yourself, we're making the public aware that they have to watch their children when in the present, when their children are in the custody of priests or any other adult, whether it be a Boy Scout leader, whether it be a private school teacher, whether it be the neighbor, whether it be the babysitter, you have to keep an eye on, on these, these adults and on your children. Uh, the Catholic Church and these institutions aren't changing very much at all. They're saying the right things, but they're not doing the right things. They're not implementing uh, programs that, that will protect children. The, the, most of their programs are voluntarily, it's voluntary. In other words, if the parish wants to institute the program, they can. If they don't, they don't have to. And, and, and even Pope Francis himself has laid out these grand statements, but there's no teeth to anything he's saying. There's, there, there's nothing in place to help children be safe. It's just a bunch of words. But again, the change is coming from the outside, outside the Catholic Church. I think for too long, uh, people have given deference to the church, have given them, you know, the benefit of the doubt, have implicitly trusted them because, you know, they are held, everyone believes, to a higher standard. You know, they report to God. But it appears that in your, in your filings and in the cases that you've litigated, that was just a facade to gain the trust and... Uh, to be able to manipulate not only the parents, but the children. Yeah, for decades, the Catholic Church has been able to hide behind the First Amendment, freedom, religion, and establishment clause, establishing a religion. For decades, up until about the 19, early 1990s, you really could not, in most states, and even in some states, you still can't pierce the, the those, those, uh, First Amendment rights, uh, but recently in the 1990s, and that's recent in my business, um, the churches, the, the courts are starting to say, in a lot of states, you can't touch religious belief. You want to believe that a picture on the wall or a feather is something you want to, to, to consider God, that's your business. If you want to stand on your head on a chair, on the altar, that's your business. But when your conduct is illegal, that becomes the civil authority's business. That's been taken out of the protection of the church. What I mean by that is the sexual abuse has gone on and on and on for so long because they could always hide behind freedom of religion in, in government intervention. But now the government is saying, no, when it's wrongful conduct, when it's illegal conduct, the government can now get involved. Now, did one of your cases actually sort of pierce that corporate veil, so to speak? Was it the well, gay yes, case? Yes, that's the primary argument. 
of the Catholic Church and of the parishes and of the pedophile priests when you go to court. They say you can't get involved in our business because of our constitutional rights, our, our First Amendment rights. And, and But when you're able to build a case to show that incrementally there's something wrong here, that, that you know, the, the supervisor was turning his back and, and the pedophile priest was abusing a child, th that attitude has changed for the better. It was actually too much power, too much protection given to the church. A man came to me a few years ago. He was 87 years old. He was sexually abused in 1937 by a Catholic priest. And he said to me, I asked him, well, did you tell anybody? Which is a common question. And he said, are you kidding me? If you told anybody in 1937 you were sexually abused by a priest, you would have been murdered. And he was serious. It was That's a different era. It was a different era. era, yeah. Yeah. Now, so uh, Gagan was the first case that you litigated in Boston that, again, the Spotlight team uh, had picked up. Uh, there was also another movie called Our Fathers. Was that also based on the, the Gagan case as well? Yeah, Ted Danson portrayed me. It was a Showtime movie. It was well done. It was in 2005. It played around the country for, I don't know, three or four years on Showtime. It was very, very well done. Uh, and and it, once again, it portrayed my activity, my, my advocacy in, in, in the Gagan cases. And once again, I was able to stand on the shoulders of, of courageous victims who come forward. It takes a lot of courage for victims to come forward. It takes some decades. That man who was 87 held on to that, that knowledge of being sexually abused for 81 years before he came to me. It, was, it just takes a, a man called me recently who's 90 years old. It just, it just haunts people. And they don't want, a lot of individuals don't want to come forward until everybody in their life has passed away who would be hurt by the news. Now, what about the statute of limitations on these types of cases? The statute, the statute of limitations have been a major impediment in these cases, but in the past few years, I'd say five years, they're beginning to loosen up quite a bit in many states. A statute of limitations is a deadline as to when you can file your suit, as you know, file a civil complaint. But the statute of limitations in New York was so bad, I believe it was you had to file a suit before age 23, that it was done away with with uh, a new law in New York, which actually allowed a, allows right now a look back window for people who are outside the statute of limitations to file a lawsuit before August 14th. And anyone who has been abused, it, it, well, it extends also the statute in other ways to someone into their 50s. So um, why is that important? Because if people get into a car accident and they have three years to sue, you know, they're, they're not, they don't feel that embarrassment and shame, this lack of self-esteem, which is all unnecessary that a sexual abuse victim would feel. Even with Harvey Weinstein victims, you're seeing it. They just came forward now, uh, recently, within the past few years, because there's, uh, there's this unnecessary self problems with self-esteem and self-respect and self-worth. So that, and, and when you couple it with religion, like God doesn't want me to come forward or God is punishing me, that it, it will punish me if I come forward, then the person is really reticent to come forward. 
And, and they also believe, as I mentioned earlier, they're going to hurt their relatives if they come forward. They'll hit them, hurt their mom or dad, hurt their mom or dad. So because of your work, though, has the statute of limitations actually changed to so that victims have more time to come forward? Oh, yeah. Because of the work of victim advocacy groups, the work of lawyers like myself, the, the statute of limitations in many states, New Jersey, New York, Arizona, Connecticut, many states has been, Massachusetts has been expanded, Vermont has been expanded, and we're still working on many states in the expansion of the statute of limitations. And, you know, in our system, victims look for validation for their claims, that they really need to be told and shown that the abuse was not their fault. There isn't any victim who would not give all the money back in the world for not having been sexually abused. But the way they obtain validation in our system is through a civil civil award. Mm -hmm. So that's very important. And some of those have been held criminally responsible as well. Isn't that right? Oh, yes. I mean, um, in the Gayton cases, one of my clients uh, was the complainant in the prosecution in Middlesex County of Gagan. Gagan received a jail sentence, maximum jail sentence of nine to 10 years. And, and, and as we all know, he was murdered in jail. By someone who had, in fact, been molested himself. Reportedly, yes. Yeah. Kind of some poetic justice in a way, perhaps. Well, many victims feel cheated because he did not serve his full jail sentence. Other victims feel as though it's poetic justice. It, it's all over the place mm -hmm. in terms of opinions. Okay, now let's talk about the hierarchy. Tell us how the hierarchy that you had in, been involved with uh, in, the, in the initial litigation had treated uh, your aims at discovery and tell us later um, how you see it today. Well, the, the lawyers for the Catholic Church fought me tooth and nail using First Amendment grounds, saying these claims are a fraud, that a Catholic priest would never do this. And we litigated for three and a half years, and they tried to bankrupt me. Uh, they weren't going to do it, but, but they were trying to, to drain my, my finances. They were trying to drain me uh, work-wise. And I was working seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Not literally 24 hours a day, but I'd say I was working 16-hour days. And, and I was just working and working. And my staff was working very hard. And we were litigating. This was not going to be forgotten by me. We were not going to give up on this. We were going to keep moving forward. At first, I thought... When I reported the Gagan cases, I thought, well, maybe, you know, this is a bad priest and, and they should know about it and, and they'll do something about it. A and bad just, apple. Bad apple. That's a bad apple. Thank you. And, and, and then when I notified them, they were so aloof about it. it. It was like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll do something about it. Then they, we started litigating and it became obvious that this was not a bad apple that, that they I'm saying to myself why don't why didn't they want to take this priest out of out circulation. of circulation why didn't they just want to you know protect children why didn't they want to stop children from being sexually abused in a wholesale fashion and I mean this guy was sexually you didn't even have to be a catholic boy if, if you were a boy and you were in his car you were going to be sexually abused so he didn't I discriminate thought, what he didn't discriminate no, he didn't discriminate. Um, one, 
one man called me, he was the bully in the neighborhood, this guy, when he was a kid. He was a big brute. He was a bully. And he used to protect the kids against Gagan. He'd see the children get into Gagan's car over in Dorchester here, and he'd tell the kids, if I ever see you get into Gagan's car again, I'm going to beat the life out of you. Now, he never did, but he scared them to, these kids to death, so they never got in the Gagan car, because he says, I knew what Gagan was doing to these kids. Had he experienced it himself personally, or he just knew? No, but he, no, he was an older guy, okay. but he, he would tell, he was like, you know, seven or eight years older than these kids, but he would tell these kids, don't you ever get in the Gagan's car again, because Gagan was big, Father Gagan was big on buying these kids ice cream. And he'd take them on to the ice cream store in his car. And when they were in his car, he'd be fondling them. Now, was it mostly boys that he was? Mostly was... boys, some girls, but mostly boys. I was reading the, the recent report just put out in November 2020 by uh, the current Pope, uh, Francis. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. There's about 461 pages that was put out. And pretty much uh, they're saying that the Catholic Church, the hierarchy, um, they really didn't know what was really going on. This was more of a low level thing. Uh, is, that, is that your reading of it? Nothing could be farther from the truth. There've been so many reports to the Vatican. There've been so many reports to cardinals, to bishops, to archbishops, by mothers, by fathers by victims, nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, the, the, the Pope is the head of a big PR machine, a public relations machine. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars on public relations each year. And they're concerned about their image because that translates into how much money they're gonna receive. So their mantra is always deny, deny, deny. If we had only known we would have done something about it, we're really the victims here, and it's unfortunate. And so, so their position is, is so far from the truth. You're dealing with an entity that has allowed the wholesale sexual abuse of children for decades and centuries, okay? They're criminals. They're, the acts of abuse are criminal, and the, the ne negligent supervision is criminal. It's immoral, and it's criminal. I read in this report that mothers and, and some anonymous people have actually written letters stating the abuse and nothing was done. And uh, numerous, there was numerous entries in there about different uh, higher ups that were told, maybe not at the level of Rome, but other higher ups that were knowledgeable about what was going on. I mean, uh, the Carrick would take some of these people to some island. He would take them to uh, some beach house. Uh, and then he was flying all over the world with some of these people. Um, how could they not have known based upon all that had been going on for, for decades? Well, that, that's the whole point. It was an open secret. And in the report, Bishop Hughes... Bishop Ramsey, all these bishops, they knew or were told about the abuse. These were big shots in the church. Even as I mentioned, well, I, I may not have mentioned earlier, but a mother wrote to the Vatican and she wrote to bishops and she sent all these people. She went to the library and got all their names and addresses. 
and talked about her children being abused. They knew, they just don't want to admit it. The report said that there was no letters, none of those letters were in any of their archives. Do you believe that? That's because they, well, first of all, they may be in their archives, but if they're not in the archives, it's because they purposely took them out of the archives so they can say they're not there. That's how they function. You know, people will say to me, they'll come out to me and they'll be shocked that uh, a Catholic priest has stolen like $300,000 from a parish or $20,000 from a parish or something. And they're absolutely shocked. And I, I look at them, I say, how can you be shocked? They're molesting children. I mean, they're, they're committing criminal acts and they're allowing the molestation of children. Why would you be surprised if they stole money? They're stealing I mean, these children's souls. That's right. I mean, the lesser crime is stealing money. And so how can you be shocked that, that it, 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 it's the culture in the church? As we're speaking right now, children are being molested by Catholic priests. As we're speaking right now, the, the victims, victims usually can't come forward till they're like 35, 40, 45 years old. The, the, the emotions will not let them come forward for the most part. Victims are starting to come forward now and reporting to me being having been sexually abused in the 90s, in the late 80s and the 90s now. And they're starting to just come forward in, in, in small amounts. But in 10 years, a lot more victims from that time period will come forward. So when the Catholic Church says we've, we've stopped all abuse because of our programs, which are never in place, because of our investigations, which are just paid, uh, they pay their own investigators, they're biased. It's not to be believed. There's no evidence of that. The only way to stop this is to call the police. That's who you call. You don't call the paid hired guns by the church who investigate these claims. You don't call the parish priest who's going to cover it up. You don't call the bishop who's going to cover it up. You don't call the Vatican. You call the police, whether it be the FBI, the state police, or the local police. Call the police. And recently there was a report uh, in Utah, it was just recent, that the church out there had set up a hotline for victims to call, and that hotline went right to the lawyer's office that represented the church. It wasn't the police. It wasn't a victim's advocate line. It was a, a line directly to their own attorneys. This was out in Utah. And the lawyer's probably part of the cover-up. He's probably gonna try and smother these cases. He's probably gonna to try to bring those people in, have them speak to priests, the victims or their parents and say, you know, you have to protect the reputation of the church here. Because it, it is religion. Yeah, it was the Church of Latter-day Saints that this report was on just well, the last you month. Know, it's the same approach, cover it up, spin control, Victims should be calling the police. Just call the police. Don't call the lawyers for any church. Just call the police. Now, let's go back again in time to discern which, which in the hierarchy, who in the hierarchy had knowledge and did nothing about it. Uh, cardinal Bernard Law. He was the cardinal of the Boston Archdiocese, I believe. Yes. And he knew. He knew. And did we he... were able to show he knew because after three and a half years of litigation, we were able to obtain the secret files which showed that Cardinal Law knew 
that Father Gagan was sexually abusing children in the past, yet he transferred him to St. Julia's Parish in Weston, and he was abusing children there. We were able to show that because a victim from St. Julia's in Weston came forward and reported being abused, and he abused, Gagan even abused after, um, sexually abused even after St. Julia's in Weston in his retirement home over by the Mass General, not too far from here. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Well, even a retirement home? Yeah, even a, often it's not about sex, it's about control for the pedophile. Often it's about control. So even in the retirement home, he was sexually he was sexually abusing children. He received maximum sentence in, in his criminal case. The judge could not give him more than nine or ten years, but he did receive that. And of course, then he, then he was uh, he was killed in prison. Um, so who was the ne- after Bernard Law? Who who was the next one that came about? Oh, Cardinal O'Malley came in, and keep in mind. After Cardinal Law resigned, he was given a promotion to a, a prestigious basilica in Rome by the Pope. He wasn't taken out of action. He wasn't taken out of ministry. But Cardinal Law, after all of this proof was set forward publicly, stated publicly about his knowledge, he was he was given a promotion. So this new this new report. What does it really accomplish then if it's just, uh, you know, the same old, same old? Uh, what is it? What's the point? The point was to sp- basically blame um, church officials in the past, not church officials today. Even though McCarrick was getting promotions in the 2000s, after all, all of it was known about his sexual abuse of adults and minors, he was still getting promotions within the church. In early 2000s, he was promoted to cardinal. The point, the point, I believe, the spin control of the church was, oh, let's let's blame everybody in the past, all the church officials we can that were involved in this in the past, but no one in the present, so that we can we can properly market this and advertise this. Now, McCarrick, he was also meeting with dignitaries presidents. Oh, yeah. He was flying all over the world. He he was very political. McCarrick was very, very political. And he was a huge fundraiser. I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. That's why they kept him in positions of power, even though he was sexually abusing children. As I mentioned earlier, the church is really interested in money. That's, that's their language. That's their currency. So he, McCarrick was really a fundraising machine for the church. And that's why they kept him in place. Huge fundraising, influential, powerful person for the Catholic Church. One of the most influential, powerful people in the church worldwide, not just in, in the United States, worldwide. Very, he would deal with uh, China, for instance. Cuba? He would de- many, many foreign countries. What is the status of any litigation against Picaric at this point? Well, we're in the process of, of, of serving interrogatories, obtaining documents, um, taking depositions, and it's going to be a long haul, but we're in it for the long haul. Litigation always takes a long time, but it, it, it's extended because of the COVID situation, which is, you know, 
tampered things down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the, the report kind, kind as, I, as I said before, kind of states that, well, Pope Francis really didn't know much about it. Well, please, you know. You didn't read reports. You don't have reports about McCarrick. You don't keep your ears open. Did you just drop from the sky and become Pope? Oh, you within the ranks for years and hear about McCarrick. It, it's sort of, it's insulting to victims. So it was, um, I think, so Pope Benedict too also had promoted him, I believe. I think he promoted right. him the most from what I recall. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share um, with the people that are watching, uh, how they can protect their children, whether it's from the church, from institutional exploitation, what suggestions do you have to help parents keep their children safe? Uh, watch your children in the first place. Don't trust them with, when they're with any adults, whether those adults are in positions of power or not. Look for signs of affection that, that are not of the ordinary nature uh, by a stranger, by these priests, by, by these teachers, uh, Boy Scout leaders. When, you, when your child is going to go on a trip, an overnight trip, you may want to give that with a, with an adult. You may want to give that some uh, extra thought because what kind of supervision is involved and what's the, what's this person's reputation in the community? Uh, because the damage to the child is everlasting. The, the pain doesn't go away for these victims. They're only trying to, to manage it. And, and, and the pain is everlasting. And when you couple it with religion, where the priest is threatening a child, is and I'd really like to thank victims for allowing me to do this work because without their courage, without their strength, without their trust, I can't stand on their shoulders. Advocates can't stand on their shoulders. They're the heart and soul of this movement. And unfortunately, some of the victims have passed on because of suicide. So yes. really speaking for those that have, have no voice anymore, as well as the survivors. That's right. I mean, and suicide is all too common, whether it be through drugs or just, just committing suicide in an awful way. I and once alcohol. had one mother come and see me and she said, um, my son committed suicide and he used to hang around with this priest. And I saw up. And she used to, he used to hang around with these three other boys. So I tracked all these three other boys down and I found that they all had committed suicide, all four of them. So, you know, it's just endless. I, I've seen more and you see a lot of victims transferring the emotional pain. They'll put cigarette butts out on their arms. They'll slice their arms. Cutting. They'll, they'll cut themselves. They'll pull the hair out of their head or they'll just lose it out of stress. The damage is just awful. It's just awful. But I'd like to thank victims and survivors for doing the work they do. And thank you for doing the work that you do to help make this a safer world for thank you. everyone. Thank, thank you, you for your questions and, and thank you for having me on. I appreciate it, Mary Kay. Thank you. I want to thank our guest, Attorney Mitchell Garabedian, for sharing information and opinions on sexual assault and abuse in the Catholic Church. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guests, visit us online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal or professional advice. And now you can download our podcasts and subscribe online. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.